This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Leanna Tan, here to give you some of Matt's best tidbits to help you live healthier, happier lives. Speaking of happier lives, we've talked on the show before about happiness and how to find it and such, but what about the other side of the spectrum? Sometimes happiness doesn't just come by following five easy steps. Sometimes there are much deeper challenges. So today I want to talk about depression. Apparently, Americans are in the top tier of people in the world with the highest rates of depression. Obviously, this is a huge problem. So let's listen to an expert on the topic to figure out why it affects Americans more than others and what the difference is between just being sad situationally and a clinical condition. We're bringing on our, our expert social worker, licensed clinical social worker, LCSW, Melissa Lampson. Uh, she received her master's degree from the University of Utah. She's been in social work for over 10 years and uh, works and actually owns NewLeafCounselingUtah.com. Melissa's a good old friend. Not old. I shouldn't say that as I look you right in the eye. You're not that old. A good young friend, but she's been on the show before and just knows how to say it. So we'll listen. Is this depression a big deal? Uh, I would say so. Do you see it out there? I mean, it's. I know a lot of people feel it. And it seems like, in fact, I've had a lot of clients that don't get it, and they just mm-hmm. kind of tell their wife to just, you know, suck it up. You right. know, life's hard. Get over it. <laughs> we all have a hard day. Yeah. So there are some interesting attitudes out there about depression, and maybe it's a choice. A lot of people believe um, it's something that isn't really logical. Um, and a lot of people say, you know, if you could change your diet, it go, it'll go away. Yeah, if you'd lose weight, just exercise. you'd be less depressed. Yeah. So a lot of people think they're these really easy solutions. And, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about the difference between situational depression yeah. versus clinical Let's depression. Let's get into that. Because so people feel depression. They might say, oh, I'm depressed. What's the difference between situational and actual clinical? Okay. So... To start off, I want to talk about a couple of statistics. So, depression is a very common experience that we can all that we can all have some point in our life. Um, and on the National Institute of Mental Health, it states that approximately 20.9 million American adults, or 9.5 percent of the U.S. population, 18 and older, have a mood disorder. Roughly 10 percent of the adult population have some mood disorder. Mood disorder would be bipolar disorder, dysthymia, major depressive disorder. I don't want to get too clinical, yeah. but that's, you know, significant okay. depression. Yeah. So, you know, it's a pretty high statistic. That's and a I very think that was statistic. done in about 2006. Okay. Um, and then you have then you have situational depression where um, anywhere from like 25 to 27% will experience situational depression. Mm-hmm. Like um, with the death of their mother. Right. Death of a mother, maybe a divorce, Mm -hmm. loss of a baby. Failing school. Yeah, failing school, moving away from family and home, Mm -hmm. losing a job. Uh, When the donut shop closed up and had to move. Right. Depending on who you are, that might be really depression. That would kill me. (laughs) (laughs) What do you do when the donut shop's gone? But see, that's kind of more just in – it's in the context of this situation. This doesn't mean you have a chemical problem. This doesn't mean you're going to be taking meds the rest of your life. Yeah. And so – so to talk about this 10% statistic or 9.5% and then the 25% statistic, mm. we we all can relate, you know, whether it's yeah. a depressing day or it's something that we've been experiencing for quite a long time. Um, so clinical is more of that chemical imbalance, um, something that, you know, it oftentimes life looks great. Yeah. And you feel horrible and isolated and you can't get out of it. And it's, it's that is the funk. Yeah. But it's not um, it's not even situational. Your life could be great. You could have just got a promotion. You're now you know, going to learn a new whatever, and all of a sudden you're still in a funk. Yeah, and still unhappy. Yeah. And so that, you know, that's the really hard thing. When you can't identify and say, 
wow, yeah, I'm grieving. I just lost my spouse. Or I'm unemployed. Okay. When you can't pinpoint it, yeah. it's extremely frustrating because how in the world do you solve something that's not that you don't know exist. what the reason is? Yeah, there's no catalyst for it. Mm-hmm. Is it because uh, this is interesting? Um, or even like having a baby. A lot of uh, so postpartum postpartum depression. depression. It's not. Would you consider that clinical depression? I mean, it's chemical. It's their body isn't in the right frame. Right. But it's not situational, is it? I mean, it's really caused Um, by something other than just context. So it depends because obviously when a woman has a baby, hormones and chemicals, they're all changing, right? Yeah. Um, So there's a normal level. They call it the baby blues. Um, first six weeks after yeah. having a baby. Scary. Yeah. That, I <laughs> In mean, a good it's, way, of course. Yeah, just um, pretty emotional, might be really up and down, have feelings of loss. But then once it goes past that and a woman has a hard time connecting to her baby and is thinking, what have I done? And they feel tremendous mm. guilt over not feeling that connection Why do I not love. feel this love? And, yeah. yeah, that's a real condition. And that one, um, that affects a lot of women. Yeah. Um, here in Utah, they said anywhere up to 30% will report symptoms of postpartum uh, depression. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a, yeah, and that's, a lot of that's just natural, right? It's just your right. chemicals rebalancing. It's you trying to deal with the fact that you're recovering and you have a new baby and you might have other kids. Right. Overwhelm. So, yeah, but if it falls in that category of it's not going away mm-hmm. and you're not feeling better as time passes on and you're still having a hard time connect to your baby and you're feeling extreme guilt yeah. and worry, you know, it's it's good to talk to a professional because it can become more chronic. Oh, yeah. But obviously situations can, you know, be the event that, you know, gets it going and and then it can prolong itself. Well, and it seems like in, in life, if you live long enough, you're going to have a situational context to get depressed over. Mm-hmm. It's going to be something, right? Right. And so I guess you're saying one of the signs that you actually have depression is if it's starting to go long term, if it's starting to impact you in a, in a way that's not changing. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the signs and the symptoms. We'll okay. kind of be more specific. So with chemical or clinical depression, like I said, that's when you have a hard time functioning. It's extremely hard to get out of bed. Uh, work is, you know, almost kills you. Uh-huh. Um, you find yourself feeling really emotional or isolated. Nothing appeals to you. You start to maybe get body aches and pains, appetite changes, you and, gain and or these lose are, weight. And these are with no real reason for any of this. Yeah. Short of just all of a sudden it's every day. Well, yeah. So you can you can meet criteria with situational depression, but this chemical depression yeah. just starts. It kind of lingers. Yeah. It's it the lingers. gift that keeps on giving. Right. So so you have this trouble sleeping uh-huh. and then a lot of times you'll experience this pain and it's it's significant. Mm-hmm. Like you can't pull yourself out of it. You can't think yourself out of it. You You literally can't. Yeah. And that, that's a very real condition. And then, so those are some of the symptoms. Um, situational depression, you know, obviously those symptoms can be the same. However, you know, like we said, we have this situation that we can kind of identify. Yeah. Um, but, you know, let's see. Are they hereditary? I mean, is this, her- I guess, situational, situational. But is, is uh, clinical depression inherited. Did grandma have it? Did great grandma have it? Is there kind of a family history of this? Oh yeah, there's a strong genetic component. Yeah, so if you see mom had it and you see grandma had it or dad had it or whatever, know your history. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz it's an indicator. It is what it is. Yeah, exactly. You we can pretend like it doesn't exist, but you know what? Apparently it does. So we we just we just start dealing with it from that angle. Yeah. So I talked with a colleague who, um, you know, shared shared his story, and he struggled with clinical depression. And he talked about being a young adult, and you know, we talk about this isolation, and a lot of times people can feel really isolated, but they're not necessarily being reclusive. Right? They're really friendly, and they seem really happy, but you know, on the inside, they might be feeling they're just lonely and alone and right. Broke. Yeah. So he talked about this. He was, you know, pretty popular, had a lot of things going for him, but had the clinical depression. There was 
no reason for him to feel depressed. And people would say, you have so many things. Oh, interesting. And you it know, almost seems like that's maybe where anxiety kind of becomes the ugly sister. Because maybe you're anxious to do something socially, but you do it. Yeah. And when you do it, you perform. And then, you, then you're depressed or, right. or you're faking it. or You're an actor. Mm-hmm. And it becomes so exhausting to pretend like everything's okay. You want to just... Just not do it. Yeah. And then you don't do it and now you're depressed because you're not doing it and you're underachieving. Exactly. These are horrible cycles, aren't they? I mean, yeah. this is like a nightmare. Yeah, it's gosh, it's hard to it's hard to even articulate, you know, when you're in that state of mind, whether it's yourself or it's a loved one, because a lot of times there's so much guilt and shame, it's hard for people to reach out and to have perfect strangers say, What can I do to yeah. help? Like Yeah, no, no. No, you have to have a close relationship, somebody that you trust to confide in. It's a big deal, too, because as I just think of our listeners, maybe somebody driving a truck, somebody, you know, picking up their kids or grandkids. It's it is. It's kind of the silent suffering thing. There's somebody Mm -hmm. listening to this right now that is like, oh, man, that's me. Yeah, that's me. So eventually after we're going to go a little bit longer, then we're going to come back. And after the break, you're going to kind of tell us what we should be doing. But is this is it seems like we just don't get it. It seems like kind of society in general, and we get the concept of depression, but it's almost like it's not a valid thing for us. Yeah, so there's this, a lot of people have difficulty reaching out and seeking help because a lot of us will view it as a character flaw or if I can just think my way out of it, you know, this is a weakness type thing, Right. but it it is real. And and there's evidence that, you know, supports that. one of the things that I wanted to talk about is you're talking about the societal thing is that the U.S. and France, there was a study done by, um, see if I remember, World Health Organization that found that we were the most depressed nation. The U.S. And the, the U.S. and France. Woo! Yes! <laughs> USA! Something to be proud of, right? <laughs> Isn't that sad? Oh, that's depressing. Yeah, so... You but know, it's so interesting, France, but we also are so happy and have so much to be happy for, yet are so depressed. Okay, so this is the point I want to make yeah. on how it's relative. Yeah. So, um, you know, they did, they studied a lot of other countries, maybe third world countries, poor countries, and they were, you know, 11% and on average 15% of people in high income countries reported having an episode of depression. Uh-huh. And then these... Low-income countries, it was lower, 4% lower. 4% lower in the right. low-income countries. Yeah. Part of the reason is I think the U.S. And, and, you know, I'm not as familiar with why France is so high. Yeah. Um, well, it's France. They're very negative. <laughs> yeah. So I hear. But I think it's expectations and what actually makes people happy. Yeah. Obviously, we're a wealthier nation, and I think people's standards of what, you know, they're supposed to be achieving are you know, maybe higher. Inflated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely inflated. And that these lower income countries are, you know, glad yeah. they have food on the table. Yeah. It's a major perception shift, I think. I think you're so right. Yeah. And what we're supposed to have, and we're okay with debt. And do you think it has something to do with how we medicate, too? Oh, absolutely. We so, just kind of throw medicine, don't we? Yeah, Western medicine. So, you know, let's just talk a little bit about Canada mm-hmm. and the U.S. And, you know, if you look online, there are countless pharmaceutical companies yeah. in Canada that you can look up. And then in the U.S., I mean, there's the standalone. Plus, I mean, you yeah. can get medication from anywhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's we medicate. That's yeah. what we do. That is our standard procedure. And of, some cultures meditate. So and we, we medicate and they're all meditating. Right. And interesting, some of those cultures that are so prone to meditate aren't. Lower rates. Lower rates of depression. Yeah. So Korea and Asia were significantly lower yeah. than the U.S. and Canada. And I think, once again, there's some perception, too. We view it as a mental illness. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they're able to you know, say it's grief, it's sadness, yeah. it's, it's a common factor of life. Yeah. And I think sometimes we don't, we don't really allow ourselves to cope or emotionally. To that. Yeah. See, Kate, when we come back from the break, Melissa, I want you to get in and just start downloading the solutions. What should we be doing? How should we be thinking? If we sense we have depression, what is our protocol? What should we, how should we approach it? Instead of just grabbing meds, what else could we be looking for? Okay. We'll be back with Melissa Lampson right here on the Matt Townsend Show. 
Welcome back. I'm Leanna Tan. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We just learned from Melissa Lampson what the difference between situational and clinical depression is. One of the big differences that she said is that you can't really identify why you're sad if you have clinical depression. And if you find yourself feeling down a lot and you can't seem to escape it and there really doesn't seem to be a reason in your life for feeling down, then you might want to seek some professional advice. This next part of the interview is a little bit of brain candy to kind of break up the heaviness of this topic. So one of the factors that can contribute to a change of moods is the music you listen to. It can dramatically affect not only your feelings at the moment you're listening to it, but also your thought process and your perception of your situation. So let's listen to Matt and Melissa analyze a few songs and see how they might contribute to depression. This is Good Life by One Republic. Oh, now you know what's cool is, uh, depression aside, is music can do a body good. Don't you think, Melissa? Yes. That was one of the things that I wanted to talk about as far as therapeutic. I mean, really, I can put on some music by Imagine Dragons, which we won't name names, but I just did, and it can really pump me up. Or we can put on other music that will just mess us up. Yeah. So what we're going to have you do, Rob's put together some songs that have probably very little therapeutic value. And we're (laughs) going to have you just assess the singers, not the singers per se, but the whole mood. Well, uh, and to see, is this somebody who's just whiny or do they really have a problem? Okay. And I don't want to. Sounds depressed to me. Yeah, it does. Now, if I, personally, the song makes me happy. But when you listen to the words, that guy's just sad. Yeah, extremely sad. You're right. It's got a great beat. Yeah. It has kind of this uplifting sound to it. But the words, they're depressing. They're depressing. And if that's like one I can't, of your favorite I can't show songs, myself to the world. Yeah. Nobody will see me the right way. Uh, Everything's going to be broken. And imagine you're just alone, already depressed, and you're listening to this song. Ugh, that's heavy. So, so music, when you're, in, when you're feeling depressed and you hear something that resonates with how you feel, it can be validating, but staying there for a long time oh, yeah. make you then feel worse. Then you're stuck. <laughs> and you're stuck in your music or your car listening to it. Give us another one, Robbie. Okay, that one just takes forever. <laughs> I think I would be depressed just having to, because this is just so long. You would be depressed listening to this? This has hope. The words are hopeful. It's hopeful. I love this. The so hope, to but me, it's so sl- oh, it is, it's a slow song, but it's moving. Yeah. And she's giving up some control. Uh-huh. Saying, Look at you. You know, saying, I can't make you love me. See, so, you know, yeah. to me, that would be kind of a relief it's, she's, and she's like pulling herself. herself out of that state that she's been in so this would be healthy song yeah i think so okay this is good the, i you're reading into a lot of this that i've never even thought of that's you're profound i think you pay attention to the sound i just like the beat, the beat. i if it makes my knee j- jump up and down then i'm happy about it go for it what's the next one Robbie? That's a scary one. That's one that's got a nice beat again. But boy. Wow. That what kid's not right. He needs help. <laughs> don't you think? Yeah. It, it almost sounds like he has a plan. Yeah. I think right? he's, it sounds like he's implementing plan his plan. Plan to hurt himself. Yeah. Exactly. That's a song, too, that you see some teenager bobbing out oh, yeah. driving home from school. And then you stop and think twice about it. You go, wait, he just said what? Right. This yeah. is why Give you all need my stuff. I'm gonna be more gone. songs from Disney. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Disney, you just don't, you can't go wrong. 
I mean, yeah. some of the fairy tales were a little weird, but, um, <laughs> you know, we're killing people and giving them poison and stuff. But at although, least we're not talking about it. Yeah. Although I will say about Disney, you've got this ideal, yeah. right? And so if you're comparing to the ideal, my marriage isn't like that. Yeah. Plus, by the way, Disney is way down on stepmothers. It's I don't think true. it's Disney. It's just all of those very dysfunctional fairy tales. families. They're very anti stepmother. <laughs> totally. I mean, where did all the mothers go? For crying out loud, moms, you need to be. Or they're extremely that. dysfunctional. <laughs> totally dysfunctional. Okay. Or or they're not even real. They're just animals that are just like mice that are singing. Yeah. Rob, give us another one. How about a really whiny one here? Oh, good. Okay, that's interesting. That's, that's a him. breakup song. That's a breakup song, but he, but actually, he's the one that was broken up with, right? He's the he's the loser in that breakup, right? He could, he could hardly believe it when he heard the news today, and he had to go get it straight from her. Yeah, no, interesting. <laughs> who, who sings so that song? So sad. Uh, Michael Bolton. Yeah. Okay, he's doing okay. Yeah. Even though he broke up, he's okay now. Yeah, so that's like a good idea of this situational depression, and he, you you get the sense that yeah. he is going to be okay. He's going to be fine. He'll go do another album. <laughs> he'll be he'll be totally fine. Music matters, though, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And one of the things um, that happens a lot of times when people go into, say, drug rehab, is they have a lot of using songs, songs that they listened to oh, while they were doing drugs. To, yeah. yeah. Which obviously, we didn't talk much about this, but substance abuse mm-hmm. can definitely lead to feelings of depression. Oh, absolutely. And so, your food. And there was another thing about creatine. Tell me about that real fast. We got oh, 30 seconds. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to mention as far as a new study that came out, University of Utah um, gave creatine as part of a trial to help lift mood in young adults. Yeah. And it had positive results. So creatine is this bodybuilding powder that they're all using to get in good shape. Is that what that is? Yeah. So it's still kind of in the works, but yeah. it has a lot of promising oh, results. And they're they're doing a study right now to have teens and young yeah. adults, you know, participate See, in. So your your basic point as we wrap this up, we gotta get back to people, we gotta get back to relationships. Grab a little creatine. For me, it's Cheetos. And uh, But let's take care of each other out there. We you know, we need each other to make it through this crazy thing we call life. And again, we'd love to have you on the show listening to us every Monday through Friday on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Show. We're listening to Matt and Melissa Lampson talk about the signs and symptoms of depression and how to deal with it. The last portion of the interview I'm going to play for you is my favorite portion. There's a lot of good advice and information here. They first talk about how depression manifests differently in teens and kids, and then what you can do as a parent or a friend to help someone who has depression. And finally, they discuss the question that I think is on everyone's minds. So, does medication really help depression? What do we do? So, first of all, how is it different manifesting in kids? And what are we supposed to do about this? Well, I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, teens and adolescents. There's a really big risk factor here because when you're a teenager, your brain isn't fully developed. We know this. Oh, for sure. And you have more impulsive tendencies and a really strong, I mean, it's difficult to be able to see past tomorrow. So the long term, you know, what will this do? How will it affect people that I love? Um, you know, what kind of choices am I making if I, you know, do something stupid today? How is it going to affect yeah. me 10 years from now? That. We may not see the repercussions. Yeah. So teens, literally their brain isn't developed enough to really see the long term outcomes yeah. of their choices. So when you have a young adult or teen that's depressed and I mean, it's it's pretty severe. Um, you have a much higher rate for suicide. Um, that's, you know, that's the more alarming part of this disease is that when, you know, the statistic for teens is that from people ages 15 to 24, 
it was the third leading cause of death. Yeah, they're serious. Yeah, it's a big deal. But it's only below homicide and car accidents. Uh. So one and two, you know, one is yeah. car accidents, two is homicides. Yeah. And so Less all of Less controllable in a way, yeah, some of those. All of those have the impulsive yeah. aspect and, yeah. you know, and car accidents, a lot of teens are driving driving crazy. Yes. Maybe under the influence. So, um, so you know, important to remember that if you're seeing this in teens and in young adults, it's really important to intervene because, you know, they're just a high risk. Mm. So, um, so what do we, how do you intervene? Whether how with do kids you intervene? or in, with your partner, if somebody is depressed, what are we supposed to do? Okay. So we talked a little bit about the signs earlier. I know mm-hmm. that Rob can, you know, talked a little bit more about it. Make sure that you're not, um, I guess, overwhelming them, saying, hey, you seem depressed. Let's get you some help. Yeah, you're a mess. Pull your head out. Stuff like that's depressing. (laughs) Listening is extremely important. Let them talk. Get them talking if you can. Let them share. Right. And just just trying to be approachable. I mean, making sure that they're not alone all the time. I know that can be hard with a teenager. Right. But sometimes if they go into their room and they're listening to really depressing music and you're concerned as a parent... Or they're totally isolated from friends or, you know, like we talked about, things appear fine, but you just kind of have a gut feeling that something might be wrong. What if their grades, I guess grades could be failing. Yeah, grades are failing. They're kind of, they're they're not able to really do anything. They just go into a dark room or. Yeah. So you need to make sure that, that you can listen and you can approach them in a way that says, you know, I, I, you seem to be down. I'm concerned about you. I care about you. How can I help? Do you feel like you can talk to me if you need to? You don't know what kind of response you're going to get, but you do. You need to keep a close eye on it. And sometimes as a parent, if you're really concerned, you do need to to get them into a therapist or a doctor to help identify what the problem is. or play hardball. And sometimes you just need to intervene. And be the parent, right? And do it, even if they don't really want the help. Right. Um, Yeah, we don't let them lead this. So a depressed teen should not be leading this decision. Right. Well, just because, like I said, just because of what can happen if it gets yeah. more and more right. severe. What happens if it, if it, it's a depressed partner that seems or acts like a teenager? Like <laughs> your wife or your husband, they just won't go get the help that she or he or she needs. How do we, I guess we do the same thing. At some point we maybe play a little harder ball. Like this yeah. is. The word that comes to mind is, is, you know, tough love. Yeah. You got to be incredibly compassionate and loving, but if, if their behavior or their mood seems to be so low, I think, you know, it's okay to be able to say things like, look, you need to go make an appointment or this. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to counsel you through this. This is too beyond me. Yeah. And, you know, being able to set boundaries. Right. That's what I see a lot with these couples I work with is one of them's depressed. They know they're depressed. Their mother was depressed. Grandma was depressed. And won't do anything. Nobody will do anything about it. And finally, it's like, well, then I'm going to leave you because I'm not going to sit here and watch you deteriorate. Right. So me or you, take your pick. That, yeah, which seems, which uh, seems so seems harsh. Like, but you know what? Honestly, it's very powerful because th- that's the moment of change. Then all of a sudden I see people move yeah. and, and then I send them to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's extremely important to love somebody enough yeah. to say, I'm concerned. Really, you need some help. And, you know, you just talked yeah. about setting that boundary of... I love you too much to stick around and watch you deteriorate. When they come in, I guess there's the different types. There's the chemical type where they might need some chemi- they might need some chemistry, they might need some meds. There's also just kind of the situational type. As a therapist, how do you what do you go about doing? So so those out there that are wondering, do I really want to go deal with this? How would you go about approaching what how you handle this? Well, first off, I like to talk about how All of us will experience some level of depression during our lifetime. It's normal. Yeah. Or have a depressing day. So there's no shame in, you know, coming and trying to get some help for it. Um, So the difference is, is you, you, you know, you kind of evaluate how long has this been going on? Is there a history of this? What has been currently happening in your life? Is it grief? Yeah. Because there's a difference between depression and grief. Grief often causes symptoms of depression. But people have to go through a process of grief to heal. Right. And medication isn't really going to do much for that. So if you're just out there medicating or like, you know, make your situation worse so they'll give you some meds. 
That's not going to help you here. No, not at all. We so, instead need to learn get some counseling where we deal with the grief. Yeah. So, and by grief, I mean that can be any kind of loss. Mm-hmm. It can be a loss of a marriage, you know, a, a loss job. of independence, a job. Mm-hmm. And that's important to get to the bottom too, because bottom of, because you have to go through the process. You're not going to get a quick fix on depression. Yeah. yeah. So, well, it's interesting. Uh, uh, thinking you would, you may as well then just go to alcohol. Yeah. You may as well just go to drugs because that's the, I mean, that's the kind of mentality of the quick fix. This is something you need to get through. We yeah. need to talk through. We need to deal with. And and it doesn't have to be horrible either. I mean, I think they, it's cathartic. It's relaxing. It's relieving to go mm-hmm. sit to talk to somebody that knows what they're doing. Right. And not feel mm-hmm. isolated and alone, yeah. you know, to be able to kind of share true thoughts and feelings and not have to hide it or act like everything's okay. What are What are some other ways that we can kind of get a little bit of a boost, a chemical boost. What are some other things that that might be impacting or might be solutions? Okay. So there's several of these. And that's one thing that I want to point out there is there are options. You know, no matter how down you're feeling or you feel like your teen or young adult is feeling, there are options. And that's important to remember. There's so many options. Um, And, you know, as far as physical sources of depression, it's important when you're evaluating. I, I always suggest getting a blood panel because yeah. having a hyperactive thyroid or a hypoactive thyroid can cause depression. Right. And so if you're taking an antidepressant and that's the problem, it's not going to go away. You need to deal with the real problem. Right. Also, nutrition deficiencies like vitamin D. Oh. Um, there's light therapy. Yeah. Um, we, we're coming up on the winter season. And so a lot of people find that their mood decreases when the sun goes away. Right. It's not out as, as frequently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, it's true. Like in Hawaii, they have a really low depress- depression rate. Um, tons of sunshine. It's because they have the phrase of... hang loose. If you <laughs> it's had a relaxed hang loose, culture. <laughs> it's a very relaxed culture. Yeah. So um, exercise. Yeah. Um, dopamine is one of the main chemicals that's low when you're in a depressed state. And sunshine and exercise helps to mm-hmm. increase that. Sex. Sex does. Yep. That's Bring, on my list as well. It's a dopamine release, right? It is. Yep. Which is a connection with another individual. Right. So um, it also, sometimes it can be hypoglycemia that's mm-hmm. causing symptoms of depression, chronic pain. Yeah. That's a big one. That's so unless right you're now. treating the, the, the pain, it's not you know going to really go away. Um, and, you know, another thing I wanted to talk about is... Let's see. It's scary. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here it is. There it is, right in front of you. (laughs) You were trying to freak us out. (laughs) Oh, my heavens. Sorry about that. False alarm. (laughs) No, like fibromyalgia. Oh, that's that's the chronic pain. You're getting diagnosed. I mean, there's a lot of things like that. Post-traumatic stress disorder, a lot of these. We, We have one more minute, Melissa. If you okay, so what do we want them to know? What's the one or two things that if somebody's out there feeling alone, feeling disconnected, feeling like they don't matter, what do they do? You know, main thing is seek support, somebody that you trust, and and see if you can reach out. And even if you don't feel like it, reach out and talk to somebody about it. There's four things that change your mood quickly: substances, food, exercise, and a connection with another individual. Hmm. Um. You know, substances aren't really a healthy way to deal with it, but the connection, yeah, and you know, the others um, can be food. Like I said, that can be a way oh, of medicating as well, good. and it increases the dopamine. Yeah, Snickers, but it's not going to have a lasting effect no. on treating depression. Well, then, and then all of a sudden you you're getting weight, and you're like, I'm a loser, and it just reinforces right. depression. Yeah. So obviously, connection. the support, and and you know, going back to the U.S. We have a more isolated culture. We really foster independence, mm-hmm. whereas there are many other countries who live in big family units. Yeah, so you've always got someone around. They have a lot of support. That's and, true. And we tend to move away and kind of do things on our own and so feel lean, isolated. So lean on the people around you. And if you're out there and you see somebody depressed, do what you can to get in the bubble. Get in with them. Right. Connect. Right. Melissa Lamson, LCSW, queen, the queen of counseling. Uh, Great guest. If you want more information from Melissa, you can go to her website, newleafcounselingutah.com. We'll be back right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
are back with the rest of today's Matt Townsend episode. If you're just joining us, we just finished up a very informative interview with Melissa Lampson about depression. She gave us some great advice saying that a lot of people seek professional help through a pharmacist or someone to get medication from to help their depression symptoms. And although that may be necessary, no amount of medication is going to fix the problem unless you work through your grief. And that means communicating with someone and mustering up the courage to talk about the challenges you've faced. At the end of the interview, Melissa taught us four things that quickly change your mood. They are substances, food, exercise, and connection. And if you look at that list, you'll realize that two of them are healthier than the other two, but one of them has the longest lasting effects, and that is connection. Building relationships and repairing old ones and fostering a foundation of trust with someone so that you can go to them and rely on them in times of need will go so much farther than any medication. The feeling of security and love and support from others is a necessary factor in coping with symptoms of depression. So for this last part of the episode, I want to play back an interview for you with Diane Barth talking about how to rescue struggling relationships. What are the top things couples bring to you to fix or discuss? It's really interesting. So traditionally, it was that, um, you know, it was uh, children, money, and sex, and not necessarily in that order. Um, but uh, this, this um, research that's recently been done says that really almost all of these things can be fixed if you pay attention to something that's much in, in, on the one hand, much simpler, and on the other hand, much more difficult, which is um, the issue of self-esteem and self-actualization in a relationship. Hmm. Like self-actualization, that reminds me of um, the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Yeah, exactly. So is that exactly. the same thing? It is, and it's interesting that you have uh, exactly. I mean, so Maslow's hierarchy of needs starts with sort of the basic needs for food and shelter. Um, and then at the very top is the need for self-actualization and self-esteem. And, what, and these um, researchers decided to call their model of, um, of marital difficulties and relationship difficulties the suffocation model because when you get to the top of that hierarchy, you uh, run out of oxygen mm. or the oxygen is much thinner. So what they, their theory is that the best way to, um, uh, to resuscitate or to rescue a marriage these days is because we look to our partners for um, uh, both a sense of our own self-esteem and also for a sense that we can move forward and be who we want to be, whether it's as a parent or as a community person or, as a, or in a career um, the, the rescue has to do with being able to sort of provide more oxygen in these areas. So it's, it's almost like, because Maslow's hierarchy discussed the fact that our basic needs need to be met, the physical needs, food, shelter, clothing. Eventually we move up higher to, you know, a connection, relationship needs, and then right. self-actualization. So is, right. is what we're running into with this theory is the idea that what makes relationships difficult today is we're now asking our partners to be a major part of our self-actualization. Yes, exactly. Which exactly. is the hardest, most ethereal level of all of our development, and yet I'm, I'm expecting my partner to bring that to me. It is indeed, and it gets more complicated because um, you're also providing it for your partner. Right. And so it's a really interactive process. And if your partner is not... Um, you know, massaging your self-esteem, you're not going to massage theirs either. Mm. Yeah, so who's becomes a, a real vicious cycle? Whose self-actualization wins? Right, right? it's like exactly. the battle of exactly. Holy cow! Unbelievable. Yeah. And, I mean, you see this all the time, right? Yeah. So, so you see it with a couple who's just had a baby, and all of a sudden, one of them is paying more attention to the baby and less attention to the partner. And so then instead of being able to say, you know, okay, let me support, and it is that, you know, these days it can be the wife or the husband. It's, it's, um, it's not uh, so gender 
uh, determined anymore. But instead of saying, um, you know, I have enough self-esteem to be able to support my partner as they provide the care and love and and, um, needs for the baby, um, some of us, you know, and and I think this happens to everybody at some time. We feel like, oh, this is being taken away from me. Mm. I used to get that attention. Now the baby's getting the attention. Right. And then we become critical of our partner. We become critical of the baby instead of being able to be in a partnership where everybody's sort of supporting everybody in the process. It, um, I, I guess it's it's funny because if if I went to maybe a third world country or another place in the world that doesn't have as much as we have here in the yeah. West, they they may not be looking for self actualization. <laughs> they yes. might just be looking for dinner. Right. Exactly. exactly. Right. And a safe think, home and a yeah. yeah. Now I actually believe that probably if we were anthropologists or sociologists and we dug a little bit that we would see that it's not really such a clear-cut, separate hierarchy, that even when you're looking for dinner, you also would like some love and affection, Mm -hmm. and you also would like some, you know, giving you some value. And the interesting thing about the theory is it's called the suffocation model, and that's what I see a lot. I use a metaphor about smoke and fire and how a lot of people just can't breathe because they're not... They're, they're fighting too much in the smoke instead of dealing with the real issues. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, exactly. So they are suffocating exactly. in their marriage. Yeah. How do we get out of that? How do we start creating more air and space? Well, it's actually very simple in theory. <laughs> yeah. Which is that, as soon, I mean, and I see this with couples when I'm working with them all the time. As soon as I can get them to start to talk about the things that they actually still in this moment admire about each other you can almost watch them both start to breathe hmm. there there's a there you know you can see the oxygen starting to fill their lungs um because i think that really we we don't usually marry somebody or become totally involved with somebody who we don't admire on some level right and who we don't have some um <clears throat> excuse me some sense of of um real their value but when we're feeling like they're not valuing us or we're not getting what we need from them or when we're feeling competitive with them about so they've got just got a promotion and instead of the old days where we could be pleased that um you know our spouse got a promotion so it means more money for the family these days a lot of couples are two career couples and so the other person feels like oh what's wrong with me that I didn't get a promotion hmm. that's so, so true as soon as a couple can start to express some of their admiration for each other and, and positively reinforce each other, the vicious cycle actually starts to diminish and the, um, and the air gets clearer and they can breathe again. And it's, I guess it, is it a, it's expression and then, um, I guess, reception of yes. what the person's saying. And, and I, sometimes, too, I guess it's believing what they're saying. Exactly. Now, that's a really good point, and it's really hard to give that kind of positive reinforcement to somebody who doesn't believe it. Mm. And, and that, again, is a two-way street. It's, it's, it, do they not believe it because you've been so critical that they can't believe you're saying something positive? Right. Or do they also not believe it because their self-esteem is, is you know, down in the dumps right now? And what, what needs to happen to make that improve. I, I guess it, people need to be they they need they need to be understood, they need to be valued, they need to be appreciated. And when they're not, they start to suffocate. Yes. What else can we do to promote self-esteem, to promote self-actualization in our relationships? Well, it's it's um an interesting again um finding from this uh, research that was done out at um Northwestern University. One of the things they said is that we are so busy um, actualizing ourselves, actually, in in our modern world and in this society, that we don't put enough time and energy and attention into our relationship itself. Hmm. 
So, you know, I mean, I don't know how you all are feeling about this, but certainly I'm hearing this all yeah. the time, you know. I don't have time to do this. So I've got to take my kids to soccer and my kids to, you know, French lessons. And then I've got my meetings and my husband's got his meetings. And, you know, and people don't have time to actually breathe life into their relationship. It's almost like you need relationship actualization. Exactly. Exactly. And we're so caught up in the self and the child actualization that yep. the marriage fails. We th- that's right. And I think we take for granted um, that the marriage is going to be there just because it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What's she going to do? Leave me? Right. Exactly. Right. And yeah. yes, that right. is. Exactly. Seventy <laughs> percent of the time it is right. her leaving. Right. Um, yeah. That's it, though. Huh? It, so it's the time that ends up suffocating. And I guess it's this idea that it's almost like we're trying to we're trying to fulfill other needs by this self-actualization instead of realizing that a lot of it's going to come from having a really safe, loving relationship. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Hmm. Is there, uh, what do you see in your practice? What are some things that you do? I guess part of it is just talking about it, getting it out in the air. It, it, that is part of it. But one of the things I get people to talk about is what did they do before they got so busy? Um, did they sit and watch football together? Did they, um, did they go for walks together? Did they go to the movies together? In other words, you don't have to sit and talk, right? Mm-hmm. What, in fact, you actually need is to spend time together. And so I encourage, you know, this is, this is an old idea, but it actually is even more valid today than it's ever been, which is I encourage people to have date nights. Yeah. So, and and to go out, and one couple say to me, um, yeah, but what will we talk about? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, so you go to the movies, and then you can talk about the movie over dinner. Yeah, and just and relate, and almost how great to not have to talk about something, but just connect, even just exactly. validate each other. Exactly, that's right. And, and that, I think, again, we're so goal-driven these days that we don't think about the fact that actually not talking about anything serious is really fine. It's lovely, right. you know. That's not what you did when you were when you were it, it, when any of us are in those romantic sort of early stages of a relationship. We don't sit and talk about uh, something. I mean, we do have serious conversations, but we also sit and look at the stars or. Um, or go to a dumb movie together, or you know, or go to a concert. Even making time for each other says a lot. Yes, exactly. And sometimes I guess that's all you need to know is that you'll always have someone there that will make the time. That's right. That's right. And that gets lost. And I, I think part of what um, I, it, the these researchers don't say this exactly, but I think that part of what is happening is just what you said before that we take for granted that the, that the basic needs are going to be met. And we yeah. take it for granted that our spouse or our partner is going to meet those needs. And really, it, taking it for granted is not a good idea because um, nobody wants to be taken for granted. Mm-mm. And that's, I guess, the key. I mean, you could almost see that we could get to a point in our minds where we don't even think we need the relationship. Right. Right. Is every you know you're taking care of everything else anyway. Yes, I actually I, I have a personal story about that. When my um, husband and I, when, when when our son was very little, we were both working, and I felt like I was doing everything. And of course, I was yeah. getting madder and madder. And he got um, he had to have some surgery, and all of a sudden he was incapacitated. Ugh. And all of a sudden, I realized how much he had been doing. Unbelievable, yeah. Which I was completely not aware of and not at all grateful for. But I'll tell you, <laughs> once he recovered, I was very grateful and very verbal about the things he was doing and how grateful I was for Right. Him. I guess we, we need to be maybe keeping our eyes open for that as well, right? Like, let's like check our stories. Yes, yes. But it's exactly what you said. I mean, we, we tend to think that we're doing the whole thing or or we could do it by ourselves. And... Um, and it's, yeah, it's very important to check that out because most likely you're not. And most likely, on the other hand, thinking that for either partner can then push the other one farther away. 
Oh, it's so true. And then then you're playing catch up. And once right. you're kind of behind, once you're I mean, it's it's almost like, I guess, somebody that really was suffocating. You know, if all of a sudden you realize you've been suffocating for 10 years, there's going to be damage. Yes. Yes. And then you got to fix that. But the thing that I have seen is that couples can go along for a long time without realizing that that they're doing damage to themselves or yeah. to each other or to the relationship. But once you actually, if you make a conscious decision to start um, trying to bring some air back into the relationship, and the two really simple things are to pay attention to the relationship and to start to notice the things that you do admire and appreciate about your partner, um, it actually, the damage can be undone. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Not always and not, you know, not if it's too extreme, but... But it can be undone. Especially if you want it to be undone. That's right. That's right. You can pretty much make anything happen if you if you want it to. And are willing to work at it. If both of you, I guess, are wanting it and willing. Well, I think it's fascinating and again, awesome insight from you, Diane. Uh, Diane, where can they reach you? What's your website? Uh, It's um, oh, I never know. Is it www.dianebarth.com or .net? Dot net, yes, yeah, thank dot you. Net. I, I wanted to make <laughs> sure that was it. Fingertips, yeah. yeah, I know, I know. And again, they can find you on Psychology Today, and too, on as Psychology well. Psychology Today, yeah. Diane, and thank there's you. There's also a link to the Psychology Today website on my, on my web. On your uh, web, page. on your page. Awesome. Thank you again, Diane, and keep up the great work there in New York. 